take thou authority to preach the gospel. Indeed, I look upon all the world as my parish. Welcome to our latest episode of Field Preachers. I am super excited to be here with Brendan and Susan and to learn more about them and their planting experience and have you guys all listen in as well. So without further ado, would you guys like to introduce yourselves, share a little bit about you because you have very similar stories of where you kind of came from and where you're planting now, the conference you're in, um, what God is up to in your faith community. Hello, everyone. My name is Brendan, and I am originally from Los Angeles, uh, particularly the San Fernando Valley. Born and raised there, educated through college there, and then uh, went to Duke Divinity School. <laughs> and now I live in New Jersey, particularly above Newark. And I'm the quarter-time pastor of a traditional brick-and-mortar church, and then three-quarters of my time is spent uh, church planting. I'm doing a network of dinners, and we're um, doing... we're attempting to start a coffee roasting company through those dinners. Wow, sounds fascinating. Okay, what about you, Susan? Um, I'm Susan Chapongo. I'm also a California native. Um, born... So am I, Santa Ana. I'm just saying. Woo-woo. I love that. Right. Cali. Um, born and raised in Sacramento, so Northern California. Uh, cradle Methodist. And... Um, Moved to New Jersey in 2011 to go to Drew Theological School. Um, I have bounced back and forth between both coasts and the conferences of Cal Nevada and uh, New York Annual Conference. And I'm currently appointed to a new church start in Westchester County, New York, which is a suburb of Manhattan. Wow. Okay. So something I love about your stories, you're both from the West Coast, you're both up in New England now, and I've never had this before in the podcast where I've had two people I've sat down and talked to that are both connected to another church, but it's not like a big, large anchor church starting a multi-site, but there are church plants not right near you that have influenced you and shaped how you are planting. Can you share a little bit about your connection to that church plant? Um, what that means for you, if you think that's a really great, healthy, exciting paradigm? What are the, I guess, the struggles or challenges of that connectionalism? Yeah. Um, so when I was in Sacramento, I um, came alongside two really incredible pastors who had a vision for a new church. Um, and that church is now 10 years old. Um, it is called The Table, The Table United Methodist Church in Sacramento, California. And um, I was there in some of the early phases of forming The Table and then left to go to seminary and went back to do my field education there um, and was really formed and shaped by them. And I think it was one of the first churches where I found space for my whole self to show up. Um, my questions, my doubts, what I did believe, what I like really couldn't say that I actually believed, um, but also a church that was vibrant and dynamic and life-giving and diverse. And um, I just didn't see that a lot of other places. And so in New York now, um, having the opportunity to plant, I'm taking, originally thought I'd be taking the DNA from the table in California and creating something similar. Um, but through just a lot of prayer and discernment, we're actually trying to launch the table New York and seeing if the model of ministry that the table does in Northern California is replicatable in other contexts. And so, um, 
church planting, you know, there's, it seems like there's a lot of us, but, um, in our, on the ground and in the field, it's kind of isolating and lonely because we're surrounded by pastors who are serving traditional brick and mortar churches with long histories. And so having those mentors and those people, um, who I can reach out to and unpack experiences with and hear what they did, what worked for them, what didn't work for them, I think has been one of, um, the best assets that I have as I go forward. And I, uh, so back in California, I wasn't Methodist. And in fact, I, um, became a Christian at the end of high school, beginning of college. Um, and I've always been attracted to sort of alternative communities. Um, in college, we started to, uh, Christian houses or like ministry houses and, um, ended up cooking dinners and we had late night discussions. Um, and when I finally decided to be a Christian, uh, the, there was a passage in Luke, Luke 14, where Jesus talks about what the kingdom of God looks like. And it happens to look like a big dinner party where the people you never expected are the guests. Um, and I felt like I was someone that shouldn't be a guest, but I was. Um, so I had that sort of dinner DNA already inside of me and all these ideas percolating. Um, and when I moved up north to New Jersey from Duke, uh, I ended up getting in contact with this guy named Zach, who is uh, a simple church planter, and there's a network of simple churches, and they are built around community dinners um, and all kinds of other things. So they're built around dinners, but also uh, what we call monastic funding. So um, let's be honest, like churches are not getting richer and people are tithing less. Uh, and even if you have wealthy folks in your congregation, there are less and less of them. Um, so what we're doing now is figuring out alternative ways to fund the projects. So uh, Zach took me on, and I'm the fourth Simple Church planter, and every Simple Church is dedicated to food and also to new ways of finding funding so we don't have to rely on tithing um, and be a burden to the people we're serving or uh, serving alongside of. Okay, I think it's huge. I love hearing about your stories and who you're connected to and that these church plants that have influenced you come from kind of similar post-Christian contexts of like out west and up north because as a church planter in the SEJ, the southeastern jurisdiction in the Bible Belt, right, when you're planting in Virginia, it seems like it's much easier. Like the, the metrics, just everything that you're looking for that in terms of funding and strategies, approaches, the numbers that you can expect of folks that will gather it's just really different. Can you name that reality? Because like in the South, we're saying, oh, you should launch with at least 120. By, by year three, you should have over 200, be self-sustaining. Do you see any of that happening in the Northeast? No. <laughs> yeah, absolutely not. I mean, even the longtime established churches don't have those, um, those numbers. Um, but to go a little bit backwards, you know, in Westchester County, New York, um, I think statistically I'm in one of the least religious places in the country. And so then um, you would maybe think that it should be one of the most difficult places to plant a church. And what I have um, found is my my on the ground experience is actually really counter to that. Um, the more time that I spend in the community, the more relationships that I build, I find that people have this deep longing for community, for connection, um, 
and and there's more churched people than than I actually ever imagined. And what I'm experiencing over and over and over again are either people who were worshiping at churches down in the city, and then as their children grew up and they outgrew their apartments and moved into these suburbs of Manhattan, that they're not finding vibrant, enlivening, amazing communities that they want to belong to. So now they're becoming de-churched by default because the churches around them, they are just unwilling to go to. Um, or um, I'm finding that there are people who um, really have moved away from the communities that have shaped them and, and really are, are they're looking for a new place and they're just, they're not finding that those places exist. And so I think what God is doing through me and the people I'm gathering is to create those, those new places. So I'm trying to compare, I've lived in, in three areas in Los Angeles, in the South and North Carolina, and then now in New Jersey. <clears throat> I've also done work in Chicago. Um, and I think the biggest difference between sort of the Northeast and maybe even the rest of the country, I could say, but for certain, the South and in parts of California, is especially in California, there was a sense that spirituality was somewhat integrated. So it, you, you may not be Christian. Um, you could be Buddhist or whatever. But that somehow practice in whatever form that looked like mattered in your day to day. So I had, I knew a lot of friends that would, um, you know, have mantras that they said every day and somehow practicing kindness mattered somehow certain like practices mattered. Um, and what I'm finding in New Jersey is there's this deep disintegration of spirituality within the daily lived experience. So what that actually looks like is there's a cultural expectation that certain life cycle markers, will, like baptism, funeral, wedding, those are expectations that uh, a pastor will serve. But also things like when you buy a car, it's expected the pastor will walk around the car. Um, people look at me like a talisman. So I get this like, I'm a lucky charm. So people want me like, when we play games, they want to sit with the pastor because the pastor will win, which is kind of fun. And I think it has a lot to do with immigration and different cultural standards. But the hard part with that is it's exceptional and not normal. So the daily lived experience doesn't require church. Wow. Okay, that is so fascinating. Um, just thinking about spirituality, is there a need for religion? Are they de-churched? Just all the different journeys and stories um, that you're able to listen to and kind of embrace and incorporate it into whatever kind of faith community it is that you're forming. Um, something else that you guys have in common that I just love and I would uh, appreciate it if you could share a little bit about is you're pretty early on in your planting experience. And I don't know all the specifics of your stories. We don't have to get total Brene Brown vulnerable right here, but I know historically I have never met a church planter ever who in the first year or two of planting said, oh yeah, it was a breeze. Everything was so easy. Usually the first like 12 to 24 months, if you survive like breathing and not institutionalized, like that's a success because it just, it's all encompassing. It's overwhelming, burnout, just all, all the stuff, right? So I don't know if you wanted to take a moment and just share 
how you, first of all, do you think it's really difficult? You know, is it stressful or what, what has your experience been? And then what has helped feed your soul and nurture you through those times of difficulty? Help other people who are feeling that way. So the first thing I'll say is um, get a therapist, get a spiritual director, um, get a coach, put all like your best friends on speed dial um, and reach out. Utilize all of those resources and have that team in place before you begin. Do not wait for the bottom to fall out and then go find all those things. Uh, yeah, I second all of that. That's uh, one of the first things that, that I did, even when I entered ministry, was I, I found a spiritual director. So I'm currently going through the Ignatian um, exam and, and spiritual exercises uh, in, a, in a structured way. I think that's really important to have a rhythm where you're checking in on yourself. Um, and so that's in tandem with, like, I'm a part of three or four different support groups and small groups and different things. Uh, because it's the work is really lonely, even though you're surrounded by an always engaging people, the work itself feels lonely. So uh, coaches, spiritual directors, therapists, really lean into your relationships, especially if you're married or have significant relationships, like nurture those. That's important. And you can't do this without them. And one of the most important things I think that I did before kind of accepting this opportunity to plant was having a really long, honest, deep, hard conversation with my partner about what this was going to look like and to make sure that like, it wasn't just me that was all in and that this was my calling, but that, that, that we had both discerned that together, um, that I was going to need completely, a, a completely different type of support than I needed when I was in a traditional parish. And the last thing I'll say is, uh, I definitely needed a person that knew law and finance. So get yourself somebody like that. Wow. Um, so I know you're early on. You might not have an answer for this yet, but I figure it doesn't hurt to ask. Uh, where do you see your faith communities two years from now? Okay, I have no idea. <laughs> um, but I think that's actually like the best answer because I, I like I wanted to step back a little bit to the first question about, you know, those first few months and what do you need? And I think the other thing besides like this whole team of people you need around yourself is to offer yourself um, so much grace because um, this is hard work and it never goes the way that you think it's going to go. And you can show up with the best um, thought out and well laid plans but God is going to show up and blow your mind and do something and then things are going to derail you and you have to be willing to um, recalibrate. You have to be willing to punt when you get off course. Um, and, you know, accountability is good, but I think you have to think really crit critically about what kind of accountability you need. I think as planters, the kind of accountability we need is like our are you taking care of yourself? Number one, um, are you getting out there and doing the things that you need to do? And then are you reflecting on what are the fruits of those efforts? Like what seeds have you planted and what's coming from 
from those things. But if, if the accountability is you need X number of people, here are your benchmarks and that's what you're working towards. Like that is not going to work. And so if you're, if you're being held accountable to produce particular numbers and particular results, um, that's not the accountability that is helpful in this type of, um, work. The accountability is, are you showing up? Are you doing your spiritual disciplines? Are you going out and making your new connections? Or did you hole up in the back corner of Starbucks and not talk to anybody and work on your laptop all day? Um, because on a hard day, that could be a really easy thing to hide and do. Um, and so in two years, I have I have visions and dreams of, of where we could be, but the honest truth is I have no idea how this is going to unfold or what God is going to do. Um, and so I just continue to take what I know is the next step every single day or week or month along the way. And, um, I've learned a lot over my years and this may be, maybe my, my own personal experience, but sometimes I get so focused on working to create a goal that I set for myself that I miss out on what God is doing and I end up achieving the goal, but the result is empty and not spirit filled because I was so bent on achieving what I had set out to achieve instead of um, doing the work that God had invited me to do to let God create what God was going to create. So I think the um, question about what the future holds for us is very uncertain also, um, and maybe in different ways. So uh, the vote that we're going to have in the next few months about our denomination and how it pans out directly impacts our space. So whether or not we have space. Um, part of my salary is still funded by the um, grants from the annual conference, and how is that going to change? Uh, particularly the the quarter-time appointment I have, um, that church controls the, the space we're using, and they might fall apart because the leadership is divided. So um, there's a lot of instability ahead of us, but what I would say for the vision for the next two years is... Um, I would like to see the people that come to Simple Church begin to thrive. So I really think the Spirit leads us towards flourishing. And um, there are people that, that I've met and people that I'm thinking of who, in the next two years, I want to see them come alive. And if we have funding, great. If we have a building, great. If I'm even a church planner in tears, great. That's all whatever. But... Um, if at the end of two years from now I can say, and the spirit of God moved and people became alive, I think I'll be satisfied with that. I can always work at Starbucks. <laughs> Amen. I love that. Just that reality. And it, I think it shows the true heart of a planter that, I don't know, if you can see lives being transformed with the love and the grace of Christ, then yeah, I'll work at Starbucks, whatever I can convert as I give them their coffee, whatever it is. But um, but yeah, you just have this deep desire to see people healed and whole um, on that road to kind of reconciliation. So final question. You guys are just so phenomenal. I'm loving this. Uh, not as scary as we thought it would be, right? But uh, you are here and I have had the honor and privilege of spending the last couple of days with you because we've been looking at the early Methodist church and trying to understand more of our story and and the stories of the first church planters along the Eastern Seaboard. For those who are listening to this podcast, but were not part of this trip that started in New York City and went through New Jersey and Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and now here in Baltimore, um, what's one takeaway, something that they should know 
to give them either hope or to challenge them to kind of rewrite the story of church planting and Methodism, you know, just whatever it is, one thing related either to the, the stories and the history that you learned um, or just the experience of hanging out with 20 other church planters for a few days. Well, there's been a couple things that I've learned or, or have been challenged on this trip. One is that everything has a start. And um, sometimes as mainline Protestants, we forget that everything we've done started at some time somewhere because of someone. Uh, and there's a story, one of the, the churches we visited, it started because some lady got angry and said, we need a church because I'm not about to have you play cards in, at my house. Um what? <laughs> so, so I, so I think the first thing is it's okay to start and it's okay to end. Sometimes we need to put things to rest and that's okay. And that's a reminder from this trip. Uh, and the second thing is uh, church planners are real feisty. We're just always trying to buck the system and the system feeds us and nourishes us. And we always like try to fight it. Um, <laughs> and I, I'm that way at least maybe I'll just keep this to me. Uh, this trip has reminded me that that's always been true, that there's always a tension between innovation and institution. Um, and both are important. And some days I want to buck the system, but that system provides my salary, stability, allows me to take risks in ways that I otherwise wouldn't. Um, and at the same time, innovation comes back and speaks to the institution. So uh, go out there and take risks and also lean in in the institution. One of the things that has struck me over the time here, and I, I'll just, I think there's two things to touch on, which is um, we only ever get part of the story. And you can interpret that in a lot of ways, but um, often we hear the big um, dramatic part of the story. We hear about when people walked out of a church or when a church, you know, had a big success story, but often what we don't hear is all of the, um, the hard work and the planning and the strategy and the heartache and the failures that happened along the way to get to that moment. And so as we think about, you know, the legacies that we leave or what we want to do as church planners and community builders, um, there's so much behind the story that we'll get told about what we're doing and to, to just be mindful of that because we hear stories about what other people are doing, um, congregations that are doing things that seem sexy or flashy or edgy are lifted up. And it seems like it was so easy and it just happened. And we're, we only see um, like the news story about that, but we don't know all that was behind all of that, the, the people and the sleepless nights and the long days and all of the, um, the things that, that led up to that moment that got either a notorious headline, notorious for good or notorious for bad. Um, and the other thing, and I, I mean, I hate to say this and I don't want to be discouraging because I think, um, the word has probably been said five times or so in the last 15 or 20 minutes, which is lonely and isolating. Um, and so this work can feel really lonely and really isolating. Um, and so I guess the thing that I take away from this is that, um, and it's, I mean, really that it's just the message of the gospel, isn't it? That like, you're not alone. 
And when you feel that way, if you kind of stick your head up above your current context and look around, you'll find that there are other people on a similar journey that you have comrades who are doing incredible work um, and that there is encouragement and support and inspiration all around you. And so, you know, if you're if you're having that moment and it it's feeling like, oh, my gosh, like I have I have no idea how to even take the next five minutes, um, you know, look beyond your district, look beyond your annual conference, look beyond look beyond your denomination. Um, there are people out there who will champion you and cheer you and guide you and support you. I love that. That's a great word as we're sitting here doing this podcast and hearing all this laughter and conversation going on upstairs as everybody really connects and reminds ourselves we're not alone because you're right. Planting for me was like some of the most isolating um, years of ministry that I ever experienced. So it's been awesome to hear your stories and helps me relive my, I'm living vicariously through you guys. So keep doing the incredible and amazing work uh, up North. And if you guys have any questions at all for Brendan or Susan, you want to know more about what they're doing, um, have links to their websites or just pray for them, um, email me at rgilmore at umcdiscipleship.org and I'll tell you everything I know. And just thanks again, guys, for spending time with me tonight, for sharing your stories. And I look forward to like our pilgrimage reunion next year, right? We got to pick a fun place and more to learn and ways to grow together. So this is like our part two of the podcast because <laughs> everything is different, right? We record. When did we record your stories? It's February. Yeah. Oh man, was it February? Uh, like the first. I think week. it was the. Oh, I was going to say towards the end of February, but yeah. I don't. Well. <laughs> Doesn't matter. I don't know either. It was pre pre COVID nineteen, so that's kind of how I mark time now. You know. Yeah. When I was home and when I wasn't. But how, like, how is life different for you? Because you're in New Jersey, you're in New York, you're right there, like, in the epicenter with just tragedy, right? I mean, how are you guys? What's going on? It's been hard. The, uh, the area is severely impacted, my area, by COVID. And uh, even two hours ago, the church down the street, a very prominent Baptist church, was live streaming their funeral for their pastor. Um, and so like people every day I'm hearing stories of people losing people. Um, talked to somebody last week who lost five people in 12 days. And, oh my gosh. Um, so yeah, it's been, it's been really hard. And the, um, church planting in this world is radically different. So the first, like the first maybe month was technological catch up. And then now it's trying to figure out how to be native on the internet rather than in person. Wow. Cause you were doing like the dinner church model, right? Which is a harder thing to do virtually. Yeah. And exactly. So the dinner church model is um, strangers coming to a strange place, eating strangers food. And I feel like none of those things are now like coherent. <laughs> so, and they, they will be eventually like people will return to some sense of rhythm but it won't be at least for a year or two. So trying to figure out how to um, form a new model that works with what we have. And in the meantime, like today I'm preparing for the eventual return 
of normal by painting the church bathrooms so that they're not lime green um, when we return. So there's there's little steps to be taken, but right now it's really uh, strategic. Um, it's all about strategy and about being a, a pastoral presence. Hmm. Well, and I bet that really means a lot to the community, right? With so many people experiencing grief and loss, do you find that they are turning more to faith communities to help guide them through this grief? You know, I, I'm going to be completely honest. I, I like to, um, I like to say that I really love mission and really want the church to be super active. And I really don't value like Sunday morning experiences that much. Uh, but the other day I was on a phone call. I was at a Zoom meeting actually with a bunch of uh, people who were outside of the church. And um, we were having a discussion. It was like a meetup discussion group. And one guy says something I thought was really interesting. He says, you know, the pandemic has taught me that I don't have any of the emotional or spiritual tools I need to deal with this. And he's like, I'm not really religious or spiritual, but right now I wish I had a spiritual home to go to. Wow. And I was, I was like shocked um, that the, the worship service, the like really rooted spiritual practices, um, having a community that prays, all that stuff is actually becoming really important because people are grieving. They need a sense of uh, rhythm. They need some kind of like anchoring practice and some way to process the information. So it has been a, you know, I, I, I poo poo so much on like the traditional Sunday morning, but actually right now, a lot of people really need that to be grounded. Hmm. That's powerful, Brendan. Wow. What about you, Susan? Have you experienced the same thing in the Manhattan area? Um, I think my experience has been a little different. My community here feels, even though we're right in Westchester County and very, very close to the hotspot, um, my particular village, um, I feel a little buffered from some of the um, chaos. While I'm on the like network with colleagues and their their experience being reported in is very different than my personal experience on the ground. Um, but I love, you know, some of what Brendan said about people are connecting. Um, people are connecting with new churches. Um, viewership of online is up. There are people that are seeking out. And um, I think that people are sharing their church and the invitation to attend church more freely because it's just as easy as a, a link in a text or a message. And it's, feels less intimidating than that personal invitation for somebody to come to church in a building. And so this, um, the access to really quality um, worship and faith community life um, being available online, I think is, is opening the door wider for so many who would never step through the doors of our buildings, but are able to step into uh community life, or at least a worship experience from the safety of their home and maybe a little bit the anonymity of their um, online, you know, being on their computer. So I'm loving that. Um, Here, you know, our community is really responding to the needs of the medical workers. That is is really what I'm experiencing. And then um, from a 
a community standpoint as well, we're connected with a lot of small business owners who are the ones that we're experiencing banding together, being really creative. I feel like the church can learn a lot from um, the entrepreneurs in the community and how they're responding to adapting their businesses to getting getting out into the world. And so here, you know, I've been just pastoring our, our group. We've got a number of entrepreneurs um, in our new community that's starting. And so they have been struggling with how to um, balance their what they believe about their their life of faith and as Christians to support their employees and their staff, but the realities of how much money they have in the bank and how long they can stretch um, keeping their business afloat when there's no incoming revenue. And a number of teachers in our community, and those are the ones who we're really surrounding with support and prayer, because what our teachers are finding is that their responsibility is less to the education of their children, but to offer. Um, almost a spiritual space for their kids to unpack what's going on at home. Um, and so, so we're really finding that we are needing to support more than ever our educators because they are, their role has changed so significantly from um, it's not about showing up and delivering content. It's about showing up and making sure their kids are okay. And so I'm, I'm finding that the teachers in our church are almost pastoring their classes. Um, and it's beautiful to see unfold and to know that um, because they're rooted in their faith, they're able to better serve the folks that they're called to watch over in their classes. Mm. Well, I know every state is different in terms of when it will lift restrictions and people can start gathering. Like I'm in Tennessee where some restrictions were lifted today, which is probably like mind boggling for you guys. Um, but you know, how are you connecting with new people right now that might find you online virtually through meditations or other spiritual resources you're offering? Um, and, you know, Brendan, I love how you said it. It might be a year or two before the dinner church thing is a model that you can really fully embrace again. So what do you envision your ministry looking like even three or six months from now? Because a lot of pastors, I think, were like, oh, gosh, well, when we don't have to shelter in place anymore, we'll just go right back into the sanctuary and do church the way we have. But I feel like this is an opportunity to just do church differently from here on out. What are your thoughts on that? I think that's right. The um, I think the reality for church has shifted radically. And in some sense, that shift was already coming. But I think that the process is, re- this whole thing has expedited that um, to the point that when we kind of walk out of their caves and we get back to life, uh, things will be so different that we can't go back. Um, so I've been thinking a lot about that myself. Uh, one thing that has really puzzled me is the online world is an efficient world. And I mean that in sort of like, uh, you know, six months ago, church planting, <laughs> I wanted a lot of participation. Um, unfolding chairs and tables, helping set up, take down. Uh, I, I really strongly believe in the Ikea effect, which is if you build it, you love it. So that's, so having people have opportunities to participate, to volunteer, to partner, those things create buy-in. And online, there's a lot less of that. So, um, you know, I can have people like submit videos or things like that, but it's really limited. 
compared to meeting in person where there's all these opportunities to buy in and participate. So um, I've been thinking through that and trying to figure out, okay, how do we, how do we create participation digitally? Um, and how do we double down on the things that work like really good follow-up, like connecting people with each other, um, building like three to six core relationships quickly so that people feel um, group inclusion. And uh, how do we do that on Facebook? How do we do that on Instagram or whatever um, digitally? And so far, so far the best things that have worked for me have been connecting people to physical resources. So um, talking with nurses who are working in the city had a conversation the other day that was really moving about a nurse that has to sit with COVID patients um, and making sure that like this person has what they need. So I, you know, drive around and um, like at the beginning of this, I had, uh, I raided the church basement and the um, shed and started passing out masks because quite literally the nurses didn't have them or the home care workers didn't have them or the doctors didn't have them. Um, so that's been the stuff, like it's still somewhat in the physical world and the digital world wants to mirror some of our physical networks and relationships, but it doesn't quite do that. So I think I'm trying to, par to pair the two. How do we safely with social distancing connect people to physical resources and each other? And how do we supplement that network digitally? Um, so I'm still working on it. <laughs> I don't know if there's like an easy answer. We're all adapting, right? What about you, Susan? Mm -hmm. What's been your experience? What's been really interesting for me is um, part of our church model is about small um, covenant groups. And those are beautiful and they transition to an online platform rather easily. Um, what is more challenging is bringing new people in because you just don't invite visitors into a covenant group. Um, and so figuring out a way to create spaces for new connections to happen. But the other piece was I was resistant to adopting some of this online stuff um, prior to the, the quarantine and lockdown. Um, we were struggling to find time for people to gather and to meet, to go through. Um, we have a four-week class that you go through to join our community and join a small group. Um, and finding a, a location to host that and, and childcare for people and all of those logistics. And I was tempted to say like, let's just, let's just meet on Zoom. It's easier, just join us from your kitchen table. And I was highly resistant to that because you know church tends to be very high touch. And I felt like there was a lot that would be missed out on by going um, digital. And since this uh, has forced us to go digital, I'm, I'm actually learning that a lot of that was um, fear that had stopped me and, and that it is working. And so as we move forward, then trying to find the, the both and, how do we offer, um, right now, it's like, how do we offer high touch in a, in a no touch world? And then um, as we transition back into, I loved what Brendan said that he was, you know, painting the bathroom at the church. And it felt to me like a, an active prayer and an active faith, trusting that someday we're going to be back in the building. And that's my focus this week as well. Um, 
is starting to make some long range plans for some of the stuff we're going to do when we're coming back into occupying space together and what that ministry will look like. But also, how are we going to carry forward some of the the beautiful things we've been able to do online into the future and not just allow those to go to the wayside as we step into what the new normal is. So as you guys are, you know, literally delivering masks to nurses and supporting and being the pastor for churches who are then pastors for their classrooms, um, how can we as other church planters across the connection support and encourage you at this time? Is there anything we can do to help? Well, I think that uh, immediately what comes to my mind is um, encouraging people to practice safe distancing where they are. (laughs) I've I've talked to pastors who uh, have said outright that they will not close and they will meet in person as long as, quote, the hospitals are open. and as, as someone who's like, I'm not, I'm not being dramatic here when I say that every day there are ambulances going through my neighborhood. Um, and at night they turn off the sirens. So I just see the lights reflecting off the wall. Um, as someone who's in that right now, it's a little frustrating to see pastors encourage bad practice in their communities because the virus doesn't care where the virus is. It just uh, will spread the same way. And right now we're in a densely populated area at the beginning of this, but ultimately it's going to go everywhere and it will be, it'll affect every neighborhood. Um, So I think for me, that's the first thing. The second thing is, uh, you know, finding churches, nonprofits in the Northeast that you can get behind and donating financially to them. For us, tithing is down um, drastically. Everything is down. I've had to make hard decisions about employment. Um, and the nonprofits in the area are inundated with all kinds of need and much less resource. So for example, my wife works at Kumac, which is a, uh, a huge regional food pantry. And, um, it, you know, the economy here is tanking as the pandemic rolls through. And because of that, they've had 450 new clients in the last month, uh, for free food. but because of all the runs on the grocery store at Costco and all that, there's no donations coming in or their donations have cut in about half. Um, So they're struggling to how do we feed more people with less while we don't have any physical volunteerism. And so, so that's what, you know, if finding things like Kumac um, or, you know, supporting your friends in ministry, I think is really important right now. That's great. Thank you for sharing that. And I would, I would second everything that, that Brennan said, especially um, it is very frustrating to watch across the country um, folks gathering. It, I, I understand the longing to physically be together. I was reflecting on this in my, in my small group on Sunday evening that um, it's, it feels safer, but we're not really safer yet. And even right here in New York, where we experience the greatest of needs, um, to encourage people to take this as seriously as they need to. Um, 
And then to reach out and see where you can do even a small amount of good, whether that's, you know, sending um, supplies or resources and start checking in your community. um, How are they doing with resources? What are their biggest needs? Because if we don't continue to shelter in place, the needs that we're experiencing in New York and New Jersey, they're already starting to uptick in other areas. Um, And so you can learn some of the lessons from what we're experiencing about the types of of support systems that you need to put in place in advance while you have have an opportunity. You know, we've we've been um, reacting, and I think that there's a opportunity for folks to be proactive about how they can care for their communities, um, particularly in this time where it feels it feels um, like there's there's this moment that we're in and right now. So what is it, April twenty seventh? Um, we're starting to see the curve flatten and there's a temptation to, to go back into normal too fast. And so the encouragement is just to hold on a little longer. And even if things are okay where you are and you never experience, I pray that nowhere else in the nation experiences it the way that we have here um, to stay put and continue to social distance while those places that are hardest hit continue to recover. Um, because we're not out of the woods yet here in New York and New Jersey. Wow. Well, thank you guys. You are such incredible people. And these are really uncertain times, but I'm grateful for you and your ministry, your witness and your communities. And, you know, to anyone listening in today who is trying to figure out how to respond to this pandemic. So thank you guys. Any final closing thoughts or words you want to share? I think it's we're gonna get through this. (laughs) Yes, we are. Yes, we are. Um, You know, one of the things that I just have um, appreciated about this time and being part of a community of faith is how um, how we witness to the miracles that God is doing around us and the ways that God is showing up and being faithful. And um, I I just have a, a full heart. As as much as my heart breaks for all the things that are happening, I'm also seeing the the kingdom around. And um, I think that that more than ever, um, we need to keep our eyes open to see the good um, and to highlight that for others as well. It gives us hope. Absolutely. Absolutely. And um, I would just say as sort of a closing thought that change and trauma exposes priorities that we didn't think we had. And right now is a good chance for us as a church to reflect on what were the unspoken priorities that are being like laid before us now um, in the midst of this deep change. And uh, I think that our theologies have to really like what we what we've been preaching does it line up now? Can we can we preach what we used to preach in the midst of suffering? Because if not, we really have to reconsider what we were teaching and preaching and believing in. Um, so right now is a great opportunity for the church as a whole and for pastors and congregants to like really take a step back and go, okay, what did we believe? What did we prioritize? And how has that changed? What comes to mind at the moment too, Rachel, is that as I was trying to remember some of the highlights of that previous conversation, that um, one of the things that I said in, in the previous conversation holds true now and more than ever, which is, um, I said, you know, make sure you have, make sure you have a coach, 
make sure you have a therapist, <laughs> make sure you have all of the things that you need mm-hmm. in place. Um, because without those, um, I think we would be lost in these, in these times. And so you can't wait until the crisis hits to find those things and so to have those things in place. Um, and I, as I thought about that, I said, wow, like, it holds true no matter what. And I just, it, it feels worth reiterating um, that this, you need to have those things in place for yourself so that you can show up and lead and be with your people and protect your own heart and spirit. So fill up your own energy tanks so that you're full to pour out in all the ways that God has called you to. I love that. I love it. And to touch on um, what you were saying too, Brendan, I think for me, a message I've been seeing a lot in all the online worship services I'm attending on Sunday. I can go to like 10 churches on a Sunday. I could never do that before. Um, But a message I feel like the church is preaching differently now and I appreciate is the message of grace and like showing grace to yourself that sometimes we're able to do more or process more or feel more than other days and and just being kind to ourselves and giving ourselves space to just survive this knowing we're going to get through it, we'll be okay but um but no one is handling this perfectly or knows exactly what to do and what's next so um, i'm holding on to that field preachers podcast has been a production of discipleship ministries an agency of the united methodist church visit all our podcasts at podcasts.umcdiscipleship.org